welcome to the Mile 99 interview series with your hosts, Greg Larkin, Mike Turner, and Jessica Harris. Enjoy this episode, and we'll hope to see you on the trails soon. Hey, everybody. This is Greg Larkin, one of the co-hosts of the Mile 99 interview podcast. Just want to take a minute here to give a shout out to Krista Cavender. We just worked with her. Uh, She's a graphic design artist, and she redid our logo for us. We're really excited about it. We've put it out on all of our social media here as of uh, late January, and uh, we highly recommend her services. If you're looking for graphic design work, logo design for your business, something like that, uh, please give her a shout. Her Instagram is Krista with a K, Cavender, and you can also find her online at kcavenderdesign.com. Highly recommended. She does great work, really clean, beautiful graphics. I think you'll be really pleased. Uh, I know we were. So as always, take care and we'll see you on the trails. Hi, this is Mike Turner, one of your hosts of the Mile 99 interview series. Today I want to talk about everyone's favorite topic. Let's be honest, it's not your family, it's not your friends, it's your gear, right? Gear is always exciting to me when it's brand new right out of the box. But the real question is, do you still love that same gear after the first 99 miles? The first 99 gear review explores these fading and sometimes exploding love affairs with honest trail tested miles. We explore how products hold up under real life conditions. Do they live up to their advertising and their hype? It's not how they hold up for a three mile spring fun run. It's how are they really doing? How are they really holding up after a long hard summer in the North Fork Canyon or a bitter and harsh winter up in the Tahoe Rim? This is where a product either shines or reveals its true inherent flaws. Our money is hard to come by and none of us either have the extra time nor the extra money to waste on products that just let us down. On the other hand, we should all support products and companies that incorporate quality designs and root out their own design flaws. We all need products that we can count on. Today on the first 99 Gear Review, I'm sitting down again with our very own Greg Larkin. We, we met last time and talked about winter off-season training activities. And if you've listened to that show, it was a great show. We dug deep into Greg's background and his history and his time in New Hampshire and upstate New York and kind of trying to figure out how he got into all of the different types of cross training that he does. Uh, so we had this idea to do this two-part series to get into you know, winter cross training. And the idea is that, you know, all of us runners in the winter, you know, it's cold and we're some of us are running, some not as much, but it's a good time to try to dig into other activities, use as other muscles, let your tendons and ligaments heal up and work out some other ways. So also we mentioned how, you know, it really helps us stay balanced during these COVID times with the stress of work and life and relationship and being physical and being active really helps us kind of keep that balance. So welcome, Greg. Thanks for jumping on again with us. How are you doing? All right. Thanks. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Been definitely doing some cross training. I mean, I really haven't put very many miles on my feet yet this year. I'm still working on a little plantar fasciitis issue. Um, but yeah, trying to mix it up a little bit with some of these other things we've been talking about. Yeah, you definitely mix it up. If I could do one of the things you do, I would be amazed. So last time we were talking and we got into your your background and how you started racing bikes at a young age with your, your dad got into racing bikes and then that kind of evolved into you racing bikes and your dad being your crew. Then you talked about during in the winters, you would get into cross country skiing. And I sound like a lot of bike riders, you said, is that right? A lot of bike riders use that as like their winter sport. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the roads up in new England, of course, in the winter time are pretty much covered with snow and grit and, there weren't as many options, um, back then for indoor training. Uh, so yeah, a lot of people just grew up in new England and they were snowshoeing as kids or cross country skiing as kids. And, and then, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people just kind of gravitated towards cross country skiing because it's such a physical workout. Yeah. And it sounds like it is. I mean, plus not only just the physical workout, but the, the temperature, I mean, it's currently snowing here in California up in uh, the mountains, but the temperatures there are just brutal. I mean, the whole gear 
you know, even that's a whole another level. What kind of gear you get? So I may want to jump into, so tonight we're going to get into your background, how you get into cross-country skiing, maybe different types of skiing, and also the kind of the gear you can get, kind of what you, what, what you can wear. Because, I mean, I just, I'm dressed for California. I'm not dressed for New Hampshire. So I need to know what I would need to get into. Uh, and then we can kind of jump into some of the stuff you've done in California, uh, what you found up here. So kind of maybe go back into the, the 80s and kind of when you first started getting into, into skiing and kind of what you were up to. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so in the last episode, we talked about how, yeah, my dad and I really got into bike racing in the early 80s. And then uh, I think we may have touched on this, but I'll just repeat it a little bit, which um, I don't know, one winter, I can't remember if I expressed an interest or if it was just sort of uh, decided at my by my parents, like, hey, we're going to try this cross-country skiing thing. Because one Christmas, I, I got a pair of cross-country skis. And I think my dad um, my mom, my sister may have gotten some as well, but I definitely remember my dad and I, um, getting these skis and he took me out. Uh, we lived really close to a, um, a rural area in New Hampshire. Um, uh, we lived in a city, but like on the, in the suburban area a little bit, but the next few towns over all these old farm towns, they had these town forests. And in the winter time, you could basically just go out there and snowshoe and cross country ski. And, um, yeah, we, I got these things. And then that winter, I don't know, it was maybe like the mid eighties, we're out on these cross country skis in the middle of the woods and uh, just trying to figure out what to do. Had no clue what we were doing. Pretty quick, quickly figured out how to snow plow to slow ourselves down, going down hills and all that. Um, but the thing I remember most, I think about the first few times we went is it was the very first time I ever experienced the bonk where my body just completely ran out of energy. It certainly wasn't the last time in my life. I'll say that, but I'd never experienced that before, even on the bike. And I just, Oh yeah. There was one time we went, I don't know how if we brought, you probably didn't bring any food or water or something and had a great time, but yeah, it was tough getting back to the car. Man. How old do you think you were at that point? Probably like 13, maybe 14 years old. Yeah, I think for a 13 year old kid to bonk is a lot different. If you're an adult our age, bonking is, yeah, it happens because we're older. And, but if you're a kid, usually you have endless energy, but you clearly found the end of that energy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sport, it uses so many muscles. I mean, more than any other thing I had done cycling, of course, very leg centric, you know, you're using your upper body a little bit to balance and stand up when you're climbing on and such, but cross-country skiing legs, core, arms, back, the whole thing, like your body's just working really hard. And I don't think I realized it. And, um, you know, back in those days, I mean, people just went out and did adventures. They didn't think about, oh, I need to bring so many liters of water and so much food and this, it just people just went out in the woods. Um, so yeah, that was definitely a very <laughs> telling experience the first time I, or one of the first few times I got on the skis. Uh, what What's the terrain like out there? Because in California, we have a lot of resorts, a lot of mountains, you know, we got up, up near us, uh, Tahoe, and there's some, there's probably more, what is it, as an alpine skiing or downhill skiing, I mean, as opposed to cross country, uh, what's the terrain like out there? How is it different than, than what we see in California? Yeah, so, you know, where I lived, um, all up in the Northeast, it's all along the Appalachian Mountain chain, so, and that's pretty much, you know, when people have heard about the Appalachian Trail, I mean, it terminates way up in Maine, which is the next state across from from uh, New Hampshire. So there's lots of mountains, but they're not the same size as the ones out in California. They typically top out at like four to four to 6,000 feet, but the weather conditions are extreme because there is no, uh, you know, warm temperatures in the, in the winter. I mean, it's freezing cold up there. So it doesn't matter if you're 4,000 feet or, or sea level, if it's minus 10 degrees, it's minus 10 degrees. So it's cold. Um, yeah. And, you know, and there's a big history, rich history of downhill skiing in new England as well. I mean, uh, Bodie Miller, like he's a famous Olympian, you know, he came from New Hampshire. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's a lot of that going on and then there is a, a, a good solid cross country skiing and racing scene as well. Um, and it's, you know, for that, it's a lot of rolling hills. Uh, you're not at altitude like you are in Tahoe. When I ski out here, I'm, I'm gasping the first few times I go because I'm at 7,000 feet. But out there, you're essentially at sea level or maybe 1,000 or 2,000 feet at the most. Um, so it's a little different, you know, terrain-wise, temperature-wise, and elevation. 
I think you mentioned, uh, it reminds me of a side story. We were running last summer and up in California here, we run across a lot of mining debris out in the canyons and the North Fork, American River. And you mentioned that in New Hampshire, you run across old ski lift debris and you would find old, like from, you know, hundred years ago. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. There's a whole website out there. Um, uh, I think it started in New England. Uh, this guy who who used to hike a lot would find all these old abandoned ski areas and ski lifts and engines and turn, you know, um, flywheels and such out in the woods. And he created a website that documents all the abandoned downhill ski areas all over New England and New York and even other parts of the world now, I guess. Um, yeah, so there's, there's all kinds of stuff out there. Uh, similar to the mining debris that we find here. And people just uh, got tired of a certain area, like like we hear, whether it's Clear Lake or the Salton Sea, it's once once a booming vacation spot, and then, then 50 years later, it's not, I guess. Very much so. Yeah, there's a big tradition uh, in New England and New York State for like this, the grand hotel era. Um, so there's these grand hotels. There's a few of them left out there when people would – basically take trains from the city up to the country and have their vacations. But then, and so they had a boom time, I think they, you know, in the 1900s. And then as soon as people were able to travel more easily by car and plane, those places fell out of favor. So there were yeah, these, these different eras, uh, you know, of, of vacationing and outdoor recreation in new England uh, that really don't exist anymore. That's interesting. Cause I know this is a side topic, but I do like history of areas and, that you know but back to your so when you're in the 80s let's talk about kind of the gear that you would you would have used because later on we're going to talk we're going to talk about current gear yeah how long were the skis and what were they like and what what did you wear and yeah you have then oh man so the first the first pair of uh, first bunch of equipment that i had for skiing that we got that one christmas uh we got these really heavy uh wide um classical technique cross-country skis. I think they were probably 210 centimeters long, just pretty long, um, heavy. They might've been waxless on the bottom. So they had little fish scales so you could climb hills with them and things without slipping backwards. Um, and they had what were called three pin bindings, which was a specific type of binding that would kind of like trap the ski boot into the ski um, and the ski boot itself was a low, like a low cut shoe, uh, but the front end of it would flex. So whenever your heel cross country skis, the heel is not fixed. So every time you're moving, it's almost like a walking motion with the skis, your heel comes off the ski. And so this, this type of binding would kind of um, keep the toe down, but your heel would come up. So naturally like the ski boot would kind of bend and right around where your toes are. Um, and, uh, boy, heavy, uh, really hard to maneuver cause they were so long. Um, you know, and then you had the poles with the big snow baskets on them and all that. So it was pretty, uh, pretty rustic. Uh, that's probably, probably like when you go to Tahoe to some cat, some beer place or restaurant, you see the old skis in the wall. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly you know, what I, it is. I, I still have a, I actually have my 1984 Burton Cruiser snowboard. Nice. That I got in high school. I got it used in high school. And then so in the late 80s and early 90s, I did a lot of snowboarding up here in California when it was a new sport. And uh, you can only go a couple places because no one allowed snowboarding. So we went to Donner Ski Ranch or Boreal. And I remember they had like dollar Wednesdays, you know, after school and we would go up there and, you know, but I still got my old board, but now it's one of those wall hangers where it's just, it's just, you know, nothing to do with it, but hanging on the wall. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of bummed out that I got rid of some of those old skis. I've got other skis that I purchased and then got rid of over the years too. And I wish I had them just to sort of see the history and the evolution of some of the tech or of the uh, technology. Or if you ever open a bar and you left something. Right. <laughs> For the walls, you know. So, yeah. so let's kind of move forward. You know, you graduated high school and you went off to college outside of Boston, right? Uh, actually, way upstate in New York. Um, upstate so, New York. Yeah. Work, so you worked outside of Boston. I worked outside of Boston after graduation, but yeah, yeah I initially okay. went to school at Clarkson University, which is mm -hmm. not even upstate New York. It's considered the North Country of New York, so it's about thirty miles from the Canadian border. 
(laughs) It's not upstate. It's like beyond upstate. It's beyond upstate. So upstate is above New York City. And that's where I was born in upstate New York, Binghamton. Above that is the Adirondack Mountain uh, Park, which is a very popular destination for climbing and all kinds of things. Above that is where I went to school. (laughs) So the next thing after that is Canada. Um, So so yeah, and and Clarkson had a cross-country ski team. uh, And I think they still do. And they were, they were competitive. Uh, there was, you know, plenty of snow up there and, you know, being near Canada and some of the other areas, uh, it drew some people that were really good cross-country skiers from high schools and they had a decent team there and they would compete against Dartmouth and Cornell and, you know, these other like Ivy league uh, schools. I wasn't on the team, but I knew people on the team and, uh, and I got some more exposure to some of the different techniques when I was up there. So what would it have been to be on the team? Was it you would have been on a team in high school? You started in high school, but you more did it for, you were a bike rider by heart. So you probably, is it you just didn't adopt it because you were you were actually a bike rider? Yeah, I think pretty much. I mean, I already had a pretty intense uh, training and racing schedule in the winter, or in the, I'm sorry, in the summertime. Uh, and so in a way, cross-country skiing was kind of like a fun way to stay in shape but I don't even think it entered my head as, Oh, I could also train for this and race this. Like that would have taken things to another level. Cause then I would have been racing and training basically year round. And I don't know that I had that type of drive. Like I had a lot of drive for the cycling, but I don't know if I could have done both at a high level or at the level I wanted to it. People tended, I think, that I knew of to focus on one or the other. I, I, there may have been a few people that did both, but it seemed like a big endeavor to do that. Yeah. Cause we, last time we talked, you, you raced bikes for 15 years and, and it's not like an ultra where you do, you know, two, three, five, if you're weird, you do 20, but in a bike racing, you do, you're doing races constantly. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah. Like more multiple on one weekend, right? You're just racing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely, you could race every single weekend from April until September and you could race twice in a weekend. And I knew guys who would based on their age and their category, they would enter a categorized race in the morning and an age graded race in the afternoon. They'd literally do two races in a single day. And I, I sometimes did two races in a day as part of like a a multi-day stage race. Um, just because of the way they would schedule those things. So you might do a short time trial in the morning and then a longer race in the afternoon. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's an incredibly, um, demanding sport. All these are physically and mentally. So the thought of then adding another demanding sport in the winter time on top of that was a little daunting for a teenager. You know? Oh yeah. Or just being up in a new school and trying to get your degree and oh and yeah as i graduated and then got into college for sure yeah was like like i was still a mainly a bike racer i was a bike racer like throughout college and after college so in order to be a cross country ski racer in college i would have had ironically to do a lot of running and at the time i was a bike racer and i was not into running at all like i thought oh this is going to hurt my knees i had all those you know pretty much those those stories in my head right that we all hear and, but I just didn't like it and it was road running and I did, really didn't want to do road running. Maybe if it was trail running, I would have found out I liked it, but I would have had to do a lot of running and not so much cycling. And I still wanted to cycle in the off season, the, the uh, skiing off season that is. Yeah. Skiing was the off season. Yeah. Skiing was my off season, but the off season for skiing was just running. So I wouldn't have been able yeah. to ride my bike anymore, basically. Yeah. That doesn't, doesn't sound like you. And so so you, you you did that in college and you, uh, the same different gear. I mean, you obviously, you didn't bring your 13 year old, 13 year old Greg gear. You probably had other stuff in college. Well, no, actually I did bring that stuff up there. And, um, and so the cool thing about that, that gear was that anytime it snowed and whether this was back in New Hampshire or up in New York, anytime it snowed, you can take gear like that. And anybody can do this. Anybody listening can do this. You buy some cross country ski gear, um, heavy backcountry or like classical technique stuff. Whenever you get a snowfall, you just go out the door and it doesn't matter where you are. Like as long as there's a five, four, three, four, five inches of snow on the ground, like you can ski. I mean, you just make your own trail wherever you want. 
And I would do that with my old gear, my 13 year old, you know, gear uh, that I got as a 13 year old that is. Um, and I took it to school and I, they had trails on campus and I would go and you know ski on campus and all that. Um, but as I got towards my senior year, I met more people on the uh, cross country ski team and they had just started practicing a somewhat new um, technique called skate skiing or freestyle skiing. And this is different than the classical technique. The classical technique, if you've seen it, the skis are parallel and you're kind of shuffling along in a track or making your own track. Skate skiing, your skis are in a V position like you're on ice skates and you're pushing off of the side of the ski to go forwards instead of like shuffling the ski forwards and backwards. Uh, so these folks that I met were really trying to master this new technique and they showed it to me. And of course, I'm trying to do it with my old classical gear and that's really tough. You actually need a little different gear. Uh, so it was like a kind of a, an epiphany, like a little bit of an exposure for me, like, wow, there's this other thing that I could do that's really challenging and difficult and takes even more energy. So it could be even better training for this cycling off season. Um, and that experience meeting these, these skiers up there really kind of like launched me into the whole skate skiing, uh, you know, era of, of my cross country skiing. What is the difference in the skis? What do they physically look like? Like looking at, at a used place and how will I know what's one versus the other? Yeah. One of the key differences is I think I mentioned this a few minutes ago was the, the classical skis that I had, had the fish scales on the bottom, not every one of them, but a lot of them do. Um, and the reason those are there is so that when you're shuffling in the track or skiing along, you can, as you step down, the fish scales kind of engage with the snow and provide back friction so that you don't slide backwards and you can push yourself forward onto the next ski. Um, and, or you can use waxable skis, which have a similar type of thing where the wax is the gripping agent on the snow. Skate skis are totally different. They don't have any grip on them at all. In fact, you wax them, you apply wax to them, glide wax, like you would do to a snowboard or to downhill skis. You apply glide wax on the entire length of the ski because the thing that pushes you forward is the, is the position of the ski. So the skis are in a V and just like with ice skates, the way you go forward is by pushing off on one of the sides and it's the mechanical resistance of the blade or the ski on the snow or on the ice or the snow that launches you onto the, the next skate or ski in this case. Um, so in that case, you want that ski to be fully gliding as you go forwards. And then at some point your weight shifts and you plant that ski and then launch onto the other ski and slide all the way forward on that one. And so it's this kind of dancing on the snow almost when you see it. Um, and it looks like I say, very much like skating on ice. All right. And so you use, you use the edge of the ski more like does there, I know some snowboards or skis have metal edges. Is there edges on these? And, and it, it, yeah, one of the first, uh, in fact, I think the first pair of actual real skate skis I bought was around 1990 when I was living in Boston or outside of Boston at that point. I did buy some skis in Boston and they had a very slight metal edge on them, I remember. Um, I think it was covered by base material, but it did have a metal edge under the base material and it, it was there to kind of stiffen the ski um, mm -hmm. and provide a good kind of like springboard effect as you pushed off on the snow back onto the other opposing ski. Um, and uh, I don't know that skis that I've bought since then have that, but that for whatever reason, I do remember that one ski had this very fine metal edge on it. Um, and it's good because it, it allowed you to kind of like cut into the snow, especially back East. A lot of the snow is very hard or icy. And so it would let you cut into the snow and get a good, you know, purchase on it so that you could then push off onto the other ski. I know that snowboards have evolved over the years with the flexibility of my old, my old 80, 84 Burton cruiser. It was stiff as a board. Hmm. Uh, and then as the snowboards got newer and newer, they're a lot more flexible and they're made, they may be shaped like an arcs where you, you know, how does the stiffness of the skis, how's that changed? Yeah. So skis have that camber as well. So if you put a ski unloaded on the snow, it's typically going to be off the snow of, you know, a little bit where your foot would normally appear. 
Um, and when your foot is on it and you're skiing, you know, your weight kind of drives that part of the ski down into the snow. And that's useful for classical because you want to be gliding when your ski is unloaded. And then when you load it with your foot, the fish scales or the wax grips the snow and allows you to push forward onto the other ski, the opposing ski. Um, skate skis are very stiff for the most part, and they've sometimes changed the way the flexibility works, but the key for choosing skis, I'll say this uh, for anybody that's interested in getting some, is that it's uh, very useful to go to a shop that sells skis because they often will have um, kind of like a weight guide on the ski. Like this ski is made for people between, you know, say 150 pounds to 170 or 120 to 140 or something like that they try to match the flexibility of the ski to the weight of the skier who would be on it. And, and that will help, you know, kind of inform the skier how stiff the ski is going to be, how it's going to react in different snow conditions and that sort of thing. Um, you know, these skis at the highest levels, skiers will have a whole fleet of skis. And so based on snow conditions and temperature and waxing types and all this, they will say, okay, I'm going to use number 10 of my 20 ski pairs, you know, <laughs> and that's a great luxury for, you know, high-end skiers. But as people with a limited budget, um, we try to do it with one pair of skis, maybe two at the most. I have one pair of skate skis and I use them for any, any conditions. Um, and somebody at a shop is also going to be able to help you with that type of thing. It, you know, give you a guidance on the best all around condition ski. Or if you do say like, this is my ski for hard conditions or soft conditions, they can help you figure out which one to get. Yes, that's a good, that's a good tips. Cause yeah, I'd want one that I can have middle, middle of the road. That way I can use it in most conditions. Uh, what is a, a skin? I've heard talk of a, of a skin. Yeah. Or a, a what is a skin? Yeah. So there's a whole other, there's so many kind of different disciplines of cross-country skiing. And I've talked about classical technique. I've talked about skate skiing. Um, these are things that you can, you know, classical, you can pretty much do anywhere. And classical uh, is the type of skiing that you'll find basically anywhere, any terrain, whether it's on a groomed trail system, ungroomed or whatever. Um, and a lot of people kind of took that you know, basic stuff I used to do out in the town forest in New Hampshire and extended it to, okay, what if we want to go climb a mountain with our skis and then ski down the mountain? People do that these days. Well, getting up the mountain can be difficult. Um, and you can, you know, use a bunch of different types of techniques to get up a mountain. But one of the things that's really helpful is when you're climbing up a steep slope, if you don't have to put your um, skis in a V position and kind of waddle your way up the slope, uh, it's better. It'd be better if you could just kind of like walk directly up the slope. So people figured out at some point, I don't know what the history of this is exactly, but there are these things called skins that you can attach to your skis underneath. And they're literally like a roll that you roll out and you glue or stick to the bottom of your skis temporarily. And it's like a thick set of hairs on the bottom of the ski. And it will just grip the snow like really well and allow you to essentially walk up a slope. Uh, and then people will get to the top of a slope and say, this is like a downhill ski slope or something. They'll get to the top of this thing. They'll take the skins off, roll them back up, put them in the pack and then ski down. Um, so there's a whole set of people who love just kind of like going up mountains and skiing down mountains on essentially cross heavy cross country equipment. Uh, and, uh, Interesting. Uh, I, I was curious about how they work because it's not like the fish scale lets you go forward, but not backwards, but the skin doesn't go forward. It doesn't go forwards or backwards. It just, it just grabs any direction. So you can't, it's probably harder to slide your feet forward as you're sliding upwards. You know, I could see you maybe do more, maybe more lifting of your feet. Yeah. I've not actually used skins, but my sense is that it, it definitely provides you know, mega resistance. So you won't slide backwards, but you're right. It's not something you would leave on your ski and then try to ski down because there's enough resistance, even to going forwards that you wouldn't be able to go very fast. So, uh, it's, it's from what I've seen, like there's little hairs that, that will basically come up as you're sliding backwards and they'll grip the snow. And then as you move forwards, they'll lay down and you can kind of like slide forward, but there's still going to be resistance there. Yeah, uh, they so were, they are they were actually, I think they were seal skin as I remember reading. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. There's like little you know? fine hairs on there. Um, yeah. And I don't know what uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure they're synthetic these days, but but they do have to be removed at the top. Yeah. Now I wouldn't we wouldn't be recommending. No. <laughs> live would, animal nah, skins. We'll stay off the seal skins for a while. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so now that comes as now. You, so you come to California. You graduated. You worked in Boston and outside of Boston. And did you before you came to California? So that you worked in Boston and like. 90 or something is that kind of when you were yeah i mean i was i was living down in the boston area from like 89 to about 97 um and then moved back up to new hampshire uh from from about 97 till 2014 when i finally moved out to california so you so the whole time you just did recreational you raced bikes for a long time then you did recreational skiing well, I did get into ski racing a little bit at one point. Yeah. Um, I, I did meet some people. In fact, I think the guy that I mentioned in the last episode who got me into the uh, the rowing machine, he was also a pretty heavy cross-country skier and a cyclist and multi-sport guy. Um, and he had started doing some ski racing. So, of course, hey, Greg, you know, I'm going to enter this ski race. Uh, well, what is this like? Well, we're going to take the chairlift to the top of Mount Mansfield, the t- tallest mountain in uh Vermont and we're going to ski down the toll road and then we're going to ski across, you know, the frozen tundra of Vermont and finally finish at the Stowe high school. That sounds like a great idea. I'll sign up for that. So, so we would do stuff like that. You know, we, a whole gang of us would go up somewhere on a weekend and we'd, you know, do a ski race and hang out and, you know, just have a great time. Um, but boy, cross country ski racing by far the hardest race I've ever type of race I've ever been in like by far. I mean, it's just between the temperature and the snow and just the weather in general um, and the amount of effort it takes to get yourself across, you know, from the start line to a finish line on one of those things is just beyond anything I've ever tried. It's so hard. Uh, Didn't we watch a movie? uh, What was that movie? We were, was on the recent, the last episode of that, uh, trail trail series where they were did this 300 mile race where you could ride a bike or yes a cross-country ski yeah yeah so i mean that that's typical i mean just freezing conditions um i there was i i distinctly remember a race i did way upstate in vermont one year again this group of us that used to do these things went up there and we actually had to, they had to delay the start of the race until the temperature got up to minus four, like Fahrenheit. Minus four Fahrenheit was the cutoff for holding the race. And so they essentially just had to delay the race for a couple hours until it warmed up to minus four so we could have the race. Um, so that's, that kind of gives you an idea of what it was like. Is that the temperature that like blood freezes or what? I mean, some sort of like. Pretty much. Some sort of number yeah. that's really you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to cross. Yeah, I don't remember what like what the reason was, but I definitely remember us like sitting around huddled in some unheated room for like a couple hours waiting for the temperature outside to get to this minimum level. It was it was pretty brutal. And then you know the second we get out there, of course it's still minus four, which is not warm. Um, and you you try to get warmed up, and you know it's just it's such a difficult sport at that level for doing it. You know, doing it as a as a racing endeavor. Yeah, I was running this weekend, and obviously it's nowhere near that cold, forty five to fifty degrees in the shade, and when you're running and you're sweating, and it's cold, it's a hard balance. And during the eighties and nineties, we just started coming out with Gore Tex and new fabrics and new wicking materials and just it's very tough to balance that breathability and wind resistance and warmth and i just i never feel like i'm successful in that what what were you wearing i know you one point we were running you you i never heard of this before you told me like you had like wind underwear and i was like what the hell is that you know yeah oh yeah but i mean you were <laughs> what were you wearing during those times yeah so wind briefs i mean absolutely required um if you were out in you know some groomed ski area on on some race course and you're you know, a lot of like there's a lot of fields and pastures that we would race on and ski on up there in up various parts of uh, new england no wind protection whatsoever. Like you're not always in the woods. You're out in these open fields and you're just getting blasted by these cold winter winds. 
wind briefs are an absolute necessity. Like if you don't wear those, you're going to be really sorry. <laughs> and so the reason we're wearing some of this stuff is because back in those days, there weren't as many windproof, like outer shell type um, products with Gore-Tex and all that. So I distinctly remember having more than one like full body Lycra racing suit. And that's what people wore back then is like, you would pull on this thing that was like basically a tight onesie. And that was what you raced cross country skis in. And they had zero wind resistance. It was just nylon. So the wind would just go right through you. So I had all kinds of, you know, undergarments, depending on the temperature, I'd have, you know, a couple of layers on my upper body. Maybe I'd have even some like long johns underneath the suit, um, thick gloves, hats, you know, with ear covers um, often. And I think you may have seen a picture of my, my still have my red fleece face mask with a little like nose hole and mouth hole and all that. And I mean, you had to wear stuff like that. Otherwise your nose would get frostbitten, your ears would get frostbitten. I mean, it was, it was pretty rough. And those weren't good fabrics. They're not like modern fabrics. They were like, like when you talk about wearing a onesie or, or like a, you know, you know, long underwear, that's like cotton. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was basically like a Lycra nylon blend, zero, zero protection from the wind. I mean, if it was a nice, you know, if it was like 25 degrees with no wind, it was awesome. I mean, you, you know, you could sweat and it wouldn't like um, get soggy or anything from sweat, but as soon as it got cold and the wind started blowing, well, like just, yeah, you had to really layer up. Yeah. And a long race, if you had a longer race that approach that got into the darkness or the dark hours you really had to change your situation i'm sure yeah yeah i mean as as i got later into it and these days i mean i've got multiple different kinds of um jackets and vests and lots of things i mean they've improved so much dramatically you know since then with the clothing um things with vents you know so that you don't get drenched underneath your um jacket so like the jacket has like underarm vents or vents on the back so that your sweat can evaporate more easily um that yeah the the technology is so much better these days Uh, so back then i mean we still wore a lot of wool because wool was you know theoretically like still warm when it was wet um so we had that and you know different gloves and um, I also had to, I, I may still have a pair. I had, um, basically fleece booties that went over my ski boots on super cold days. So kind of like gaiters when you wear gaiters, uh, for running, those are more for just preventing rocks and stuff. These are actually fleece booties that would wrap around your ski boot and not interfere with the binding. And it would give you like another 10 degrees of warmth in your boot. Wow. Huh? That's amazing. Yeah, cold weather running or any kind of sport like that. It's a whole different world. In California, we're pretty fortunate to not ever have to be in those conditions. No. So moving out here was such a shock to me because not only did I not have to use half the stuff I used to use back in New England clothing-wise, um, I also, uh, we I haven't touched on this too much, but I, I mentioned glide wax for skiing, for skate skis. Well, there's lots of different temperature ranges for waxes because waxes, uh, they make waxes for all different kinds of snow types and temperatures and all this. And you really want to match your wax to the type of snow and the conditions of the day. And there's waxes specifically for super cold days when the snow is very hard and very um, coarse. And I have not used any of that wax, I think, since I've moved to California. All the waxing I do is for super warm, wet, heavy snow on warm days, because even if I go up to Tahoe and it's maybe 20 degrees when I get up there, say at eight o'clock in the morning, by one in the afternoon, it's generally in the high thirties or low forties. And it's just such a different environment. I mean, back East, I would go skiing and it would be minus five when I started and it'd be maybe like two degrees when I finished, (laughs) you know, like that's how it was. Um, But out here, it's just such a wide range of temperatures. Yeah. That's just, it seems, it's just, so hard to relate to if you're, if you're not from back there. Uh, so you you did you trained or you race and recreational skied all through those years, and uh, then you come to California and uh, talking about the wet snow and the warm snow and the people. You even see California like spring skiing. People are are skiing in a t-shirt or no shirt or 
It's pretty different out here, huh? Oh, it is. Yeah. And I mean, the cool thing about out here too is, and based on what we're getting this week, I mean, we're getting some pretty heavy snow up in the mountains and it's fully possible that the season out here, if we continue getting good snow for the next month or so, or whoever, however long, um, you know, it can potentially last into April or May. And I think it was last year, one of the skier, one of the cross country skiers that I go to up at Donner Summit Auburn Ski Club, uh, they closed maybe in like late April, but they reopened for Memorial Day weekend for a couple of days because they still had a few kilometers of skiable snow. And, you know, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, I kind of cut my season short early last year. Um, but this year, I've so far I've skied in November, December, and January. And I'd be really cool if I could ski like every month, at least until May, you know, starting in November. Um, so the season out here can last a lot longer because even if it's 55 degrees up at Tahoe, if they have an eight foot base, it's not going to melt in a day. Whereas back East, they tend to not get as much snow. Uh, so the season will usually wind up, you know, no later than April. Um, it'll, it'll pretty much still, you know, things will melt and they won't really be able to keep going. Uh, it's, and here in California, obviously when you get into March and April and May, we're, we have races, you know, we have, we have a lot of spring races. We, before pre-pandemic, we know we had formidable and rocket chuck and even locally here. So everyone's, it's hard to get a weekend day. Like, you start to have to, it's a weird time of year where you on the highway, there's people going uphill with skis, downhill with kayaks, bikes <laughs> going uphill, you know, everybody's going different directions. Cause when spring comes, we have a lot of, a lot of activities other than just what we do with this bike riding, mountain biking. And like I said, there's kayaking is big up here in California, rafting. So it gets very competitive to go skiing in April. You really, you really got to either be a diehard skier or something because it's, it's so many things to choose from. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in typical past years, I, I would have, I would start racing, you know, trail racing in February, March, April, like you say, getting ready for Canyons 100K in late April. And then, you know, maybe if I would signed up for a hundred miler or something like that, I'd be, you know, that, that my first one would, you know, was Tahoe. 100 TRT 100 miler a few couple of years ago now you know that would keep me preoccupied because I'd be thinking like oh I got to really spend a lot of time on the trails and get prepared for these things um but based on how the race seasons are, are evolving you know during the pandemic I mean who knows like this might be the year that it would be good for me to try to ski I say every month if I can all the way till May um and even just you know even if you're in the middle of like a race season throwing in some cross training, whether it's on the skis, the bike or the rowing machine, like we've been talking about, you know, one day a week, you know, just see how you feel. If you're not feeling like you want to run, but you still want to do something that gets your heart rate up. Like these are good choices. Yeah. And we, uh, I mean, we, California, we have a, we kind of have a drought cycle. So last year was pretty good snow, but the couple of years prior to that, it wasn't that great. And then it was pretty good a handful of years ago. So we have kind of a, you know, your race season compared with COVID compared with, is it a good snow season? Cause some years we just have really good snow and some years we just really don't. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump into California. You've been here for a number of years now and kind of what, what are you using and where are you going? Where can, where could I go? You know, you, you always, you guys go to the ski swap a lot. Let's jump yeah. into that information that you got there. So yeah. Where to go. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, if people are interested in, in trying out cross-country skiing, um, the very first thing I would recommend is just find a place and I'll, I'll describe a few here, but a place that has rentals available and has lessons available. I think that's the best thing to do to eliminate frustration. Like no matter what you're doing, in these types of sports, I think it's a good idea to take a quick lesson. Um, you'll get some real basic information. It doesn't have to even be more than probably like a half hour, 45 minute lesson. They give you how, uh, ideas, how to use your equipment, you know, the proper way to hold the poles, put the skis on, you know, these types of things, how to position your body. 
um, and then just the basic techniques. And that goes a long way to kind of getting you out there and getting you excited to start something. Um, so that's the easy way to try this out is just get some rentals and uh, get some lessons. And there's a number of places up in the Tahoe for people that are in this area that are listening to this up in the Tahoe area. Uh, the places that I go to frequently are Auburn Ski Club, uh, which is right up at Donner Summit right next to Boreal. Uh, Tahoe Donner, which is north of Truckee a little bit. Royal Gorge, which is, I think, the largest trail system in North America, or it was at one point, and it may still be. And um, Tahoe Cross Country down in Tahoe City is another excellent place. I'd love to go there. Uh, really nice home, homey feel there. And um, it's best to check their websites, especially this year. Typically, they would all have rentals. They would all have um uh, lessons available, but some of them have had to modify their business uh, offerings during the pandemic just due to social distancing and other um, constraints. Uh, I know a few of them have rentals and lessons available, but it's best to check their websites to be up to date on that and what the fees are and, and that sort of thing. And do they do those spaces sell gear too, or is it just rentals? Uh, they typically will do rentals. I'm trying to think if they ever sell off their stock like rental fleet or anything like that at the end of the year, I think, I don't recall if they do, but the one other thing I'm going to suggest that if you, if you do get into this and you've rented a few times, and of course that's going to cost you some money. It's going to add up over time. So it's not cost effective. You know, if you're planning to do this often, if you are ready to make the jump and buying your own equipment, a great way to do it is to go and find a ski swap. And if you follow these, different areas on Facebook or other social media. Um, Tahoe Cross Country in particular, every year prior to the season has a ski swap. And they, people bring in old equipment and this is where they may sell off some of their rental fleet uh, every year. But other people, other skiers will, will upgrade and then bring in their old equipment and sell it for dirt cheap usually. Boots, poles, skis, um, accessories, whatever, clothing. And I went there a couple years ago and I was blown away by how much stuff was available. I mean, it was like you were in a store. I mean, there was so much stuff you could barely get through it all, all different models of skate skis and classical skis and boots and poles and jackets and everything. Uh, so really, really good option. Uh, I, I used to go to, I used to go to a school at California state university, Sacramento, and they actually had a ski swap every year as well. Yep. And I, I was a snowboarder. I, I was, I tried skiing, but I was always snowboarding was always what I was, what I fell less doing. Right. Why I stuck with it. Uh, but yeah, Sac State had, so I know, you know, down the hill there are, and even there's a, there's a, a really good ski shop in in Roseville called Clark's. So uh, you don't always have to be up the hill. If you're in Auburn or you're in Roseville, you're down the hill. There's lots of ski, ski places you can get equipment and rentals. I used to, rent a place in Auburn. There used to be two places in Auburn you could rent, but now they're both closed. So I think you gotta, uh, when my girls were growing up, I actually have, I became a snowboard addict because I have two daughters and now they're in their twenties, but I I collected snowboards at every Goodwill, Ski Swap. I just bought snowboards because my girls were growing so fast. Mm. I, I ended up having like 15 different boards, which I still have. It's because I have one of every size for every size of ch child that I knew. And I, I collected boots from Goodwill and Facebook. And I, I just, cause I had, I had this big collection of shit kids gear, which it worked great. But now I, now I probably it's time to get rid of all that stuff because I don't have any kids anymore, but <laughs> I used to find snowboards at Goodwill and skis and, and, you know, and, and goggles. So you don't have to, you don't always have to spend big money. Uh, I really, I, when I, my kids were growing up, especially with kids, I found a lot of gear at Goodwill. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nowadays Facebook marketplace as well. Yeah. I would encourage people to check Craigslist, Facebook marketplace, you know, various Facebook yard sale groups. Um, just yeah. Putting in search terms like cross country skiing or cross country ski gear, things like that. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, cause I mean, if you're just starting out with it, you don't know if you're going to want to commit to it. Um, if you can get a, a set of boots, poles and, and skis and bindings for like, you know, no more than a hundred dollars. I mean, that's a great way to just kind of test things out. Yeah. And definitely, uh, 
especially or for kids because they grow so fast and uh mm. my girls they love snowboarding we used to go to donner a lot and boreal and and then as they got older they got better and i got slower i end up <laughs> i have a long like a longboard snowboard now and I, I'd go up there and cruise for like three hours and I was just done and they would go all day. And I think when I, they got into doing some of the tricks at Boreal, some of the, the rails and stuff. And I did a few of those and it, it was a disaster. <laughs> not, well, we're not still working good. on getting you on the cross country skis some, at some point here. <laughs> oh, and I've done downhill skiing, but that was too dangerous. Still, yeah. I'm much better on a snowboard. I just grew up on a snowboard. So it's much easier, you know? Yeah. Well, it's good to have, I think those, those, um, basics on balance and just technique on and being just familiar with snow in general, I think helps you with all these different snow sports. Um, a lot of them are very balance dependent, you know, you have to have excellent balance and excellent body awareness and control and all that. So, so, I mean, even if you're a downhill skier and, and, or a snowboarder, like cross country skiing is, you know, it's going to take all those skills and then add in the component of like a really hard workout on top of it. But it also, uh, is very technique heavy in, especially with skate skiing. I don't feel most people can just go out and just be a, you know, able to skate ski. Like, I think for, if you're into that, then you want to learn that absolutely take a lesson because it's a different type of thing than just kind of using the traditional classic technique where you're just keeping the um, skis parallel and you're sort of like shuffling along in the woods or in a track um, skate skiing. There's a lot of coordination between your upper body, your lower body and all that. And so an instructor or lesson, you know, a lesson will help you a lot with that. Yeah. And I know you mentioned uh, before the pandemic, you were trying to organize last winter before the pandemic, you try to organize, we had a good snow year, but you tried three times to organize a runner, kind of runners, you know, up, good to going up there and showing people how to, how to cross country ski. And you had, you had talked to the, you know, them about how much the rentals were and you had, but then we, we tried three times and uh, it's yeah. bad snow days or bad, you know, chains. It just was, it never worked out. Every single time I tried to get, <laughs> <laughs> the group ski day together and people were interested in it and that was great. But every time, uh, yeah, there was some issue with the weather, like the road was closed or it was a chain control day and it just wouldn't have been a good idea to go up there. And, uh, it's just so frustrating. Um, and I eventually just had to give up cause the winter ended. <laughs> so, and then the pandemic started. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of interest from the running community and I would love to get that going again at some point. I don't think it'll happen necessarily this winter. Uh, again, just because we're still in the midst of a lot of restrictions and whatever, but uh, hopefully next winter I can, you know, kind of, I'd, I love to introduce people to this sport. I love this sport. I can't even tell you. I, I think I've may have told you at some point and some other friends uh, when I've been out skiing, if I could do cross country skiing year round, I would like, I love this sport. It's just when you get the technique down and you have a beautiful snow day and it's just bluebird skies and you know, it's white and you're out in the nice air it just feels so good to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I grew up doing it or whatever, but it's so scenic and it's just such a different thing. Um, and so, yeah, if it was available, I would do it all year round if I could. And so it sounds like pretty much uh, as a runner, we're not really giving up an exercise day. If, if you find the right place and obviously you have to try it a couple of times and figure out how to do it, but, you know, so maybe don't look at it as giving up a running day, especially in March or February. No, you know, think of it as a, if you go up there a couple of times, probably by your third time, would you guess you can pretty much you go for four hours or kind of like a, you know, what's a good time period for like a good long. Yeah. Um, I mean, every year since I live out here now, every year I go up there for the first day of skiing every winter and I'm gasping for air. <laughs> Even though I may have spent a lot of time at Tahoe over the summer, there's that period of time in the fall and through the holidays where you're really not getting up there too much. You're busy. So I kind of lose the, the altitude effect. And then I get up there and I'm now I'm doing this ridiculous exercise. that's just taxing my aerobic system beyond belief. So I'm gasping. I may do an hour, hour and a half of skiing very easy just to try to get my lungs going again. But then like, yeah, like after the third or fourth visit, 
I'm feeling pretty normal. Like I would, like we would in the summer when we start going up the Tahoe and running, you, you get used to it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, there's, there's days on a great day of skiing. Like I could potentially be out there for three, three and a half hours, um, you know, doing this at a pretty good clip and not stopping a ton either. Um, you know, obviously as I've aged that I slow down a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely done cross country ski days of, you know, close to three and a half hours, I would say. Um, and you finish that and you're not going to feel like you missed a run day at all. Like your legs are toast. I mean, your quads are just burned your upper body. Again, you're not even getting the upper body is running. You know, as, if you're running, I mean, your, your shoulders, your core, your back, everything is tired. Um, so you're going to feel it. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I want to go up this year and, uh, we'll have to organize that. So, in the show notes today, you know, we've talked about a lot of places you can go to rent gear, to ski. We'll have all those linked in the show notes so people can kind of kind of go through and, and find a place that they want to go to and try to find some rentals, you know, uh, and place to go. Yeah. The other place I, I should mention, too, where I got my most recent um, ski package was Alpenglow Sports up in Tahoe City. And this is a really popular multi-sport shop. And in the wintertime, um, you know, they have a great selection of cross-country skis. Um, I believe there's another place called Paco's in Truckee that also carries cross-country ski gear. And uh, it's nice to have a shop that has expertise with cross-country. I mean, you can find a lot of shops for downhill because it's a really popular sport. Cross-country isn't quite as popular, so it's a little harder sometimes to find people who are knowledgeable. Uh, but both of those shops up the hill are great. And um, yeah, I bought my stuff from Alpenglow and been using it for a couple of years now. And I think I'll be using it for quite a while. Mm, nice. Uh, good. So that's, uh, that's fascinating. It sounds like, it sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like Greg, you know, like <laughs> just purely crushing yourself for the, for pleasure. It's a good sport to do that. I gotta say. <laughs> oh Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's been great. No, it's been good to chat about that. And so like I said, we will include these show notes talking about some of these places to get gear, to go, go cross country skiing and learning about this stuff. And uh, I'm excited. To, I mean, we got today, we have great snow. I mean, Colfax, we got five inches here. It's, it should be a good snow year. Mm. The pandemic is slowly lightening up. At least California has just lifted its stay at home order. You can go outside and do more things with a little bit less worry. Obviously, you know, there's all kinds of restrictions, but that's why Greg said call ahead. You know, the websites may or may not be up to date. So make sure you call ahead before you just head up the hill. Certainly, you know, bring your change, bring water, bring a sleeping bag. People in California can't drive in the snow. I'm just saying we run off the road. We're, we're spinning circles. We hit each other. And it's not uncommon on a chain day to be on the, on the highway for six hours. Yeah. It could be overnight. So just be prepared when you're going in the winter. It's, it's no joke up there. Yeah, that's for sure. I definitely do not like, even with my car having snow tires on it, I still put snow tires on coming from new England. I have the chains and the snow tires. I still don't like driving up there when there's any hint of precipitation or any kind of, you know, ice or snow on the roads. Oh yeah, for sure. You, you actually have snow tires, huh? That you yeah. Every winter. Yep. That's my new England, uh, my new England habit, I guess. Yeah. Most people on the highway are not from here. They're from the Bay area. They're going too fast. It's just always a disaster. Yeah. Up there. So on a nice, beautiful day, that's the day to go. Not on a chain day. So you can, yeah. enjoy, especially with your first time going a sunny day. Oh Yeah. You come, you come back, you come more likely to repeat it if you did, you know. I think so, yeah. And and also for cross country, it's usually a good it's it's good to go maybe a few days after the end of a storm. Um, because the the way the snow falls up there, it actually needs to compress a little bit before you know the groomers and, and all the traffic on the trails kind of packs the snow down. Otherwise, you can tend to sink a lot. And I've skied up there on days like right after a storm and your skis just sink into the snow and it's a lot harder to, to, to ski period. Um, so it's often a good idea to wait maybe three days, four days after a big storm, let them pack things down for a few days and then go and do a lesson or get out on the trails up there. That's good advice. That way you're just, you're likely going to enjoy it. Yeah. 
that's so, the key. Huh. No, awesome. Thanks, Greg, for coming on and talking about these things. I mean, I'm new to, I've done some snowboarding, but certainly not. I want to get into this skate skiing and try it out this winter for sure. And uh, but thanks for coming on and talking about your cross training because you, you do so many cross training things. It's just it's good for us runners that, you know, don't do that to maybe think about a new sport to pick up. I think this is a good year because there's a lot less races, you know, and yeah. spring, there may not be a race this spring. So this may be the, the perfect year to pick up a new winter sport because there are no races. That's true. Yep. And there'll yeah. probably be some fall races, maybe summer, but all, I think all the stuff in the spring are probably going to be probably not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you've got time to just kind of play around and experiment. Yeah. Uh, no, thanks Greg for coming on uh, and talking about this again. You know, this is the first night in gear review. So we wanted to kind of wrap up this two part series of uh, Greg's winter cross training activities. I think it's pretty awesome. Interesting to hear all the stuff. Also get to know, get to know your hosts a lot better, you know, Greg's background, where he's from. And between the two episodes, I really learned a lot. I'm not run with you for years, but I learned a lot. These two episodes that are things that I didn't know about yeah. uh, all the other pieces of, of, of your, what made you, you. So it's been pretty awesome. So thanks for sharing all your story, your history with us. And it's been great. So, uh, and out there, if you have any ideas of thoughts on places that you've enjoyed cross country skiing or some of your experiences, please, you know, leave us a comment and uh, tell us your story and share that as well. Uh, thank you, Greg. Thank you. Uh, and everybody, we'll see you on the snow trails. <laughs>